Happy Holy Week, friends. My name is Dave Ainsworth. I am one of the pastors at Citizens Church, and we again had a little bit of a recording snafu on Sunday. Somebody with long legs accidentally bumped the power switch to our sound system, and so uh, the sermon got cut off, but you just missed a few minutes, but I thought I'd introduce it before you come right into uh, me mid-sentence. I will start by reading John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Uh, the sermon today centers on the wedding at Cana when Jesus turned water into wine. So here we are, John 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now to the sermon. Foreign countries and like natural disasters and then my internet being down. And sometimes Jesus does it. Um, the thing is, we don't know every kind of miracle Jesus performed during his ministry, right? Um, we only know those miracles the gospel writers chose to write down. For us, And they chose to write down these miracles specifically because of how they communicated who Jesus was and what he came to do. And so Jesus' miracles are more than just sort of parlor tricks, um, right? He's not a magician manipulating creation. He is the God of creation. Uh, Jesus' miracles are also more than impressive acts of compassion, uh, like a multimillionaire who just decides to pay for the medical bills um, of a stranger. Like, that's a really kind and good thing, um, but that's not what Jesus is doing here, where he just came primarily to die, for the, die on the cross for us, but, you know, while he's here, he's going to heal a few people. Like, the miracles are essential to the ministry of Jesus, um, and they're essential because they reveal in miniature who he is and what he's come to do. Um, all of his miracles are like many parables, which confirm two things to the reader, Christ's authority and his mission. First, we see in Jesus' miracles that he has authority over nature, sickness, demons, death. His miracles are not about technique, they're about sovereignty. And so this isn't like a Harry Potter situation where he's gone away to school and figured out how to conjure up some miracles. Like he just tells the storm to stop. Right? And that's because he is the God of storms. And so it listens to whatever he does. Miracles confirm Jesus' authority. Miracles also confirm Jesus' mission. 
Why do the disciples tell us about Jesus giving sight to the blind? It's because Jesus has come to give sight to us. It's a parable. We are all blind, and Jesus' ultimate redemption is to open our eyes. Why does he raise the dead? Um, All of the people who Jesus raised from the dead eventually died later. They weren't permanently resurrected, right? They didn't receive eternal life. Like later, they got sick again and and died later. Um, And so why does Jesus choose to raise the dead temporarily? He does it because he shows us how he plans to overturn death permanently, that that is his ultimate aim, is to rid the world of blindness, to rid the world of lameness, to rid the world of death. C.S. Lewis writes, in all these miracles, the incarnate God does suddenly and locally something that God has done or will do in general. Each miracle writes for us in small letters something that God has already written or will write in big letters across the whole canvas of nature. They focus at a particular point, either God's actual or his future operations on the universe. When John the Baptist later questions Jesus' identity, whether he's the Messiah or not, Jesus points to his miracles as the evidence that he is the Messiah. Matthew eleven two. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to him. Uh, Jesus here is actually quoting from Isaiah 61, which foretold the ministry of the Messiah, basically saying, I am doing all the things that the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures said the Messiah would do. Of course I am the Messiah. So in John chapter 2, John records Jesus' very first miracle, the turning of water into wine. And this scene must be super important because unlike the Synoptic Gospels, which include just like, like scene after scene, just so many miracles are in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John only includes seven signs. And so he handpicks seven signs to um, reveal who God is. And so the ones he chooses must be very special to him. Uh, Scholars refer to the first half of the Gospel of John as the book of signs. Um, That's what he calls the miracles, but he only includes seven of them, so each is meant to pack a punch. Uh, Again, John 20, 30, which we'll say so many times over the next year, John 20, 30, verses to 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these seven are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so maybe Jesus healed my internet that one time, but like it's not something that I come and like share a testimony, right? Because it's not going to really encourage your faith. It's not going to cause you to, yes, I am going to give my life to Jesus. These are seven specific signs which communicate Jesus' authority and the nature of his mission, what he has come to do. But that is kind of funny because this first miracle feels a little bit like healing my internet. It's not freeing someone from blindness right? It's not making someone who was born crippled suddenly able to walk again. It's not raising the dead. It feels kind of silly, and even to Jesus in the story. So John 2, 1 through 4, on the third day, 
there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, commentators do rightly make much of the social situation here. This is uh, more serious than it would be if it happened in our um, culture, even though I, I can imagine, you can imagine at a wedding, like if you ran out of food, if you ran out of um, wine for a crowd, it would be embarrassing, but it, was, it is especially embarrassing. It's especially shameful in as hospitable a culture as this uh, first century Judea. It would have bought, brought great embarrassment to the groom's family, who is responsible for putting on this party. Um, a seven-day party, mind you. So it's like a, a, it's a, a lot of wine is required. Um, and that basically communicates Mary's compassion here. Mary is showing her attention to detail, her affection, her compassion on this family, and it's really admirable. Now, no doubt Jesus also has compassion for this family's predicament. He also cares for people, but still he pushes back. Jesus said to her, verse 4, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, you, I'm curious if you bristle at the way Jesus addresses uh, his mother here. We should be careful not to impose uh, modern etiquette onto, uh, onto what Jesus says. It is not misogynist here to address her with uh, the title woman. It is unusual and so one scholar said he knows of no other place in ancient literature where a man refers to his mother as woman. He's never seen it before except here. And so what this communicates is a change in relationship between Jesus and his mother. Uh, as a widow, Mary was accustomed to depending on Jesus, looking to him for help and care, um, but that was beginning to change. Uh, not unlike this groom here, uh, they were celebrating, who has now left his father and mother to hold fast to his wife. That's what Genesis 2 says, marriage is. Jesus is, in essence, leaving his mother also on a mission to redeem his bride, the church. And so he challenges her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Uh, it's an idiom here, and it's translated elsewhere in scripture as, you and I are not thinking alike. Um, another place says, what does this concern of yours have to do with me? And so even though Mary's motivation is admirable, her mission here is different than Jesus's mission. They have different agendas. And so what is Jesus's agenda? It's at this point when John introduces a new theme that resounds all through the book of John, one that we haven't heard yet, but will um, keep showing up. Verse four, woman, what does this have to do with me? my hour has not yet come. Jesus will speak again and again about this hour. During the book of signs, he will talk about it not yet coming, so chapters 2 through 12, but then as Holy Week begins, his language will change and the hour suddenly arrives. So John 12, 23 to 24, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come, for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. John 12, 27, 31 to 33. Now is my soul troubled. 
And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. John 13, 1, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And then John 17, 1, his final prayer, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And so what is the hour that Jesus is talking about? Why does it come into his conversation with his mother, Mary. The hour is the time of his death, his sacrificial death as the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. Um, A scholar, Clendenin, says, that's the time for which and toward which Jesus was moving and about which he was concerned. Yes, he cares about people's genuine needs and hurts. And we often see him in the Gospels and in our own lives meeting those needs, healing and comforting, but he never loses sight of the goal of redemption and never veers off course into the weeds of superficiality and face-saving. And so already, even at the very beginning of his ministry, when he's just hanging out at a wedding with family and friends, on his mind is this coming hour. He is focused on his death and resurrection. And this is a good reminder to us that God's ways are not our ways. Like Mary, we tend to see those needs that are right in front of us. Even compassionately, we might see needs that are right in front of us. But any need we have today, if it is a need at all, is nested within our much greater need for salvation, for forgiveness, reconciliation, rescue, freedom, healing, restoration, and resurrection. And so our needs are many parables, incomplete parables of a greater need we have for eternal life in Christ. And so we shouldn't be surprised if sometimes Jesus responds to our prayers with, woman, what does this have to do with me? Man, you and I are not thinking alike. Now, of course, Jesus' hour has already come and passed. He has died and is now alive, reigning at the right hand of God. But our hour has not yet come, right? We are approaching death And Jesus' main concern, his ongoing ministry in our life, is laser-focused on that final hour when we will pass from death to life, preparing us for that moment. On the night before his death, as the clock struck his hour, he was looking ahead to us. So John 17 in his prayer, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, glory being his death, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the Lord may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus is focused on that hour for us. And so there might be some frustrations, difficulties, even public shames where Jesus sees them, but he doesn't do anything about it because he has a greater salvation ahead for us. Now that said, what does Jesus do? He goes ahead and answers Mary's request, right? It's almost like the stern parent uh, who pretends to be super serious, right? But then gives, the kid gives 
Jesus like puppy dog eyes and he goes ahead and makes 180 gallons of alcohol for her. Like, like, like what is happening, right? Um, it gives this scene a fun quality, like a rare view of family, family dynamics at play, right? Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And then she just completely ignores him. And his mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. It's a fun thing to imagine. But what happened? Did Mary persuade him? Is this a distraction from his mission, uh, as he implied in the beginning? Or is this miracle somehow now part of his mission, uh, a sign of his redemptive work? So let's read the rest of the story. The details that John provides in this story are important. First, verse 6, the six huge stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. There were six stone water jars, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And so these large jars contained water used in Jewish purification rituals. Uh, These rituals are more than is prescribed in the Old Testament, uh, but had been added to symbolize one's commitment to moral purity. And so as Nick preached a couple weeks ago on the Lamb of God, according to the Bible, sin against God is the world's biggest problem. It is the thing that Uh, Jewish faith was aimed at is forgiveness of sin, cleansing of sin, holiness, purity. Um, And these purification rituals, washing of hands, uh, taking ritual baths, uh, they are meant to remind Israel of that. They're made of stone because stone is less prone to contamination than clay, and so any water added would remain pure. However, if the jars are used for anything else, they become ritually ruined, and so they are set aside exclusively for this purpose. But Jesus proceeds anyway. Verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. We should pause to note, this would have taken a crazy long time, right? 150, 180 gallons of water. They don't have a tap um, that they can just access, right? And so they're going to some central source in in the village to get water and hauling gallons. You wonder what the servants were thinking in this process, right? What were the conflicting thoughts going through their head? Um, But they filled them up uh, to the brim, John says. And then the miracle Verse 8, and he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus is teaching us a great deal about what he's come to accomplish through this miracle. Uh, But first, how did he do it? We don't know. There's not really like a ta-da moment. He doesn't like wave his hands or say anything, right? There's no command. There's no prayer. Like when he multiplies the bread and the fish, he prays and blesses it, right? It just happens. Um, Helpfully, Augustine comments that this kind of miracle is just a speeding up of what God does every year, right? On the hillsides of California, God is constantly turning water into wine. He just takes a year to do it, right? Water from the rain to the soil, up the roots and stems to the flower to the grape. And then uh, with time, the grape ripens, water becomes juice. And with more time and a lot of love, uh, the juice becomes wine. Uh, C.S. Lewis calls this miracle a miracle of fertility. 
Uh, This miracle simply proclaims that the God of all wine is present. The vine is one of the blessings sent by Yahweh. He is the reality behind the false god Bacchus. Every year, as part of the natural order, God makes wine. Once, and in one year only, God, now incarnate, short-circuits the process, makes wine in a moment. The miracle consists in the shortcut, but the event to which it leads is the usual one. And that's the first and most obvious lesson from this miracle. Jesus is the God of wine. He is the creator God, right? He is, in the beginning, he was the word, and the word... um, made everything. Psalm 104 is about him. And so Psalm 104, a creation psalm, says, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. His very presence, Jesus' very presence at the wedding is noteworthy, right? He's just started his ministry, recruited a handful of disciples. John the Baptist has christened him the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. And how do lambs take away sin? They do it by dying. Jesus knows that's what he's going towards. And with that kind of mission, who's got time for weddings? Jesus does. That's so counter to how we normally think of zealous, prophetic, religious reformers, right? They have one-track minds, That's kind of what you see in his interaction with his mother. He has a one-track mind in one sense, but at the same time, here he is lounging at the wedding, so it's almost like Mary is calling his bluff, like, you're here. Matthew 11 from earlier, if you remember, why did John the Baptist doubt Jesus? Verse 2, when Jesus heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples. I found that crazy this week. What were his deeds? miracles like he was doing all kinds of healings raising people from the dead casting out demons turning water into wine and this actually made john question whether jesus was the messiah why i wonder if john didn't have the same problems the pharisee had and he hangs out with sinners He spends time at weddings and parties. He helps sick people. I care about sick people too, Jesus, but there are only 24 hours in a day, and this nation isn't going to save itself. Like, we need to be focused. Where are your priorities? But Jesus is the God of wine. That's not the only thing he's the God of, but wine is one of his priorities. It's something that he cares about. It's one of his responsibilities, and maybe that's why Mary told Jesus about their lack of wine, because she had a sense that this fell under Jesus' responsibility as the Son of the Most High. He could fix it, and he did. But how did he fix it? And this is the real purpose of the miracle at Cana. By using the purification jars, Jesus is announcing with his first miracle what he has ultimately come to do. Jesus is asking us, have these jars saved anyone? Have these jars cleansed anyone? No. They have been filled and refilled and refilled and refilled and refilled. Now they're empty. And still the people's sin won't wash off. And Jesus wants us to be done with the old ways. He wants to retire the purification jar, to repurpose them. He wants to change them from the inside out. He wants to change us from the inside out. Notice how before Jesus performed this miracle. The jars were for washing hands. 
the outside of the body, but he has changed them into something for our insides, something to drink, something to cleanse our hearts, to gladden our hearts. That's what God said wine is for. And he really does change these jars. Rabbinic teaching specifically says that wine cannot be mixed with water used for purification. And so these are decommissioned now. They're no longer good for purification. A watching Pharisee would have thought such use of these stone jars an expression of disrespect to the law. But Jesus' use of the jars actually shows that he does respect the law. That's why he fills them with water first before turning it into wine. He doesn't just dump wine in it. He fills it with water. St. Augustine remarks how important it is that Jesus used water in the stone jars to perform the miracle, showing us how Jesus still values the Hebrew Scriptures. The law is good, but it is a provisional good. It is a means to an end, and that end is wine. He's not doing away with the law. He is transforming it. So St. Augustine, when he turned the water itself into wine, he showed us that the ancient Scripture comes from him too. For by his order the jars were filled. This scripture too is indeed from the Lord, but it has no taste if Christ is not understood in it. Our Lord Jesus Christ changed water into wine. What was tasteless acquired taste. What was not intoxicating now intoxicates. That's the danger of empty religion, Christless religion, is that it is tasteless. And so as we read this parable, something that truly happened, we can ask the Lord to do that to us, that he would take the water of an empty ritualistic faith where we we are going through the motions and washing the outside of our body over and over again, and we can ask him, Lord, will you please turn my faith into wine? Will you make it taste? Will you make it intoxicating? This is always the direction that we're to aim, toward the feast, toward the wine. The Messianic age was always foretold to bring an abundance of wine. Amos 9.13, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, when the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. They won't be able to harvest and plant fast enough. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. Joel 2.24, the threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overthrow, overflow with wine and oil. Way back in Genesis, when Scripture first indicates that the Messiah will come from the tribe of Judah, it's one of the earliest Messianic texts in the Old Testament, Wine is mentioned, Genesis 49, 10 through 11, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice vine, an allusion to Palm Sunday. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. What does this mean? It means that when the Messiah comes, the forever king There will be so much wine that he will wash his clothes in it. Wine, not water, will be what fills purification jars. Of course, being Holy Week, we can't think of wine without thinking of the Last Supper and the wine that would be Jesus' blood. Luke 22, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. 
Verse 20, likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So wine in the Old Testament is often a symbol for blood, with the wine press being a symbol of God's wrath against sin. And so when Jesus, already having been titled the Lamb of God, already having referred to the hour that was to come, when he turned this water into wine, was he thinking of the purifying power of his own blood? How his saving blood would lead to the liberation of the nations, the celebration of the nations? This is the hour he told Mary about. This is the hour he was thinking of when he performed this miracle. Clendenin again writes, The lack of wine at the wedding suggested to Jesus the deeper human need he had come to meet. People had no inherent strength to save themselves from the dire predicament in which they stood as sinners. He did not come to supply wine, but salvation through his blood, although the time for that sacrifice had not yet arrived. Nevertheless, as a sign pointing to his eventual satisfaction of our need for forgiveness in his blood, Jesus supplied the wine they needed at the wedding. And not just any wine, it was the finest wine. The finest wine. This is how the story closed. It's how I'd like to close this morning. What did the master of ceremony say? He said, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people are drunk, the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Does everyone serve the good wine first? Jesus doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. His wine only gets better and better. When the master says this, he's not necessarily disparaging the first wine. Maybe it was fantastic. This was just so much better. And in the same way, Jesus is not disparaging the old covenant. He wrote the old covenant. Those were his terms. The law of the Lord is perfect, but grace is better, tremendously better. Paul later, himself a former champion of the law, a Pharisee of Pharisees, would later say this in 2 Corinthians. He says in verse 7, chapter 3, verse 7, Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permitted have glory. I'm turning 40 this week. I know. I'm told that it's all downhill from here. But that is not the way of Christ, right? To give all the good wine and the good life to the youthful and leave the poor wine for old people. That's the way of death. That's the pattern of death, right? And Jesus came to defeat death. Jesus came, he lived, died, and was raised on the third day that he might supply more than enough wine, the best wine for the ultimate wedding feast where we will never run out. Every other bridegroom who woos you will start by offering the good wine, but then when you are drunk, we'll give you the poor wine, and then we'll eventually run out of that and the party will be over. But Jesus, 
the perfect bridegroom starts by offering great wine, and it gets better and better and better for all eternity. Sometimes his wine, admittedly, might be a little funky, right? The Christian life is, has some notes uh, that aren't always so palatable. Discipline, hardship, but you know it's good, and it will keep getting better because he is the God of wine. Who do you want to marry? Who do you want to give yourself to? The God who starts great, gets worse, and then dries up, or the God of wine himself who gives wine to gladden the heart of men? I want to close with a passage from Hosea 2, and then we can pray. Hosea 2, verse 16 to 23. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. No longer will you call me my Baal, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the creeping things of the ground. I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel, and I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful that you are not just the God of Good Friday, but the God of Easter. We are thankful that you turn water into wine through Good Friday and that we can feast now. And that life is meant to be a forever feast. Father, we wait for that day. We look forward to it. We ask that you would give us tastes of it here and now, like you did to Mary and the disciples in Cana so long ago. Would you give us glimpses of how you turn what is tasteless into something delicious and wonderful and gladdening? spirit-filled. Father, would you do that here? And would we be agents of that in this city, that by the Spirit we would be moving about and be longing for people to experience this kind of Jesus, the water and the wine Jesus. This is what you came to do, and we praise you for it. Uh, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.